Let's begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, our hearts are and our minds are scattered, but we pray that you would draw them to you during this time, God. Our hearts are, are weary and worn out, God, and we seek rest, and I pray that we could find rest in you. God, could you send your Spirit to work through your Word as you have been doing for centuries for your people to convict us of our sins and draw us to you, God. Could you do that during this time? You have the words of life, God. And so it is to you and to your word. Amen. Amen. So you've all been there. You're flying down the road, speeding down the road, maybe a little fast, but you're only doing maybe 10, 12 over. You're fine. And then there's that guy who passes you. There's actually someone out there who passes you. And he's not just going 10 to 12. He's probably going 15 to 20. That's just dangerous. But then you drive on. You drive on for a little bit more. But then your heart jumps with delight. The next time you see him, you see Justice has come to the world. One of our very own fine state troopers has pulled him over. And you slow down and you merge over away from them. And, and admittedly, admit it, you're happy. You're happy he got pulled over. You're happy there's just, in that instance, a little bit of justice coming into the world. But then as you go by, you realize, oh, wait. Well, that could have been that could have been me. So you rejoice, but then you you do so fearfully, and that's the same thing we have in our book here of Nahum. It's a it's a short book, a short book. It's only three chapters, and it's about the destruction that God will bring upon Assyria and their capital, specifically Nineveh. And we will see in this that God's judgment will come down upon the earth and burn everybody. Burn them in their wickedness. Like our friend that got pulled over. But for those who believe, those who take refuge in Christ, those who fearfully rejoice at God's coming judgment, they will find refuge and a stronghold in God. So that that is what the book of Nahum is all about. And we're going to focus in on these verses. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so here is our our outline of where we're going to be going. We're under the text of Nahum, and so we follow its its contours and and its its meanderings. And we sit under it as we preach this message, and so we do our best to follow that. And so what do we do? What do we take out of this message of judgment that God is going to bring? Well, we fearfully rejoice. Fearfully rejoice 
in God's coming judgment. We want justice in the world. We want it. That's what you want. We want justice in the world. And so we, we rejoice, rightfully. We rejoice when we see that justice coming down. But we do it so fearfully. We fearfully rejoice because we know that could be us as we sit and ponder and contemplate our own state before God. And so we're going to look at it in two parts here. The chapter, or verse 6 here, we're going to look at the fury of God, the wrath of God that will come. And we will see, and in your hearts you will contend with a just God. And then, in verse 7, we're going to see the eye of the storm. When this justice of God is swirling around us, this fury of God is swirling all around us, right in the middle of this hurricane, of this great storm, there is peace. And there is a paradise in the midst of all of this chaos, all of this judgment that is going on, right in the eye of the storm. That is where we shall go. That is where we shall go. It's just as Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, as the glory of God, all of God, who He is, passed on by Moses. He hid in the cleft of the rock. Where shall we hide? Where will you hide? Find that in the cleft of the rock. So first part here, verse 6. This fury of God. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. And much has transpired since our, our friendly little book of Jonah that we covered two weeks ago. Remember that Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh and he gave this prolific five-word sermon, and much to his chagrin, they actually repented of their sin, and sackcloth and ashes, the king and the cattle, and all of the people were repenting. And the Lord, who is, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, he withheld disaster from Nineveh that Jonah said would come to them if they would not repent. Fast forward almost to the year, 100 years. Now you have this city or this, this city of Nineveh and the Assyrians, they are brutally oppressing the, the known world. They've, they've left Nineveh and they've crossed over this fertile crescent and they've come down and they've been oppressing the people. And they're ruling the world, not through political intrigue, no, but rather just through brutal oppression. They're the first empire to have professional soldiers. That was their craft, was to oppress. That was their job, and they did it really well. So they've swept through in this northern kingdom in 722. They did not repent. They were carried off into exile, Never seen, never heard of again. And then they've come down a little bit further in 701, maybe a generation later. They've, they've eliminated every other fortified city within Judah. And then there's just Jerusalem, the city on the hill. And they've surrounded it. But Hezekiah goes in the temple and he prays and he repents. And God relents 
from their judgment as He did upon Nineveh. So that's what's going on in this, in the, around this time with the Assyrians. Now, meanwhile, within Judah, this godly king, Hezekiah, who brought these, this word of destruction into the temple and laid it out and, and prayed before God in the temple, this godly king was replaced by his son, Manasseh, who is the most ungodly king of all of the Judean kings. He was so evil that he would he passed his son through fire, meaning he would sacrifice his own children in the Himon Valley, southwest of Jerusalem, within several hundred yards of the city of David. Here is the king of Judah, the king of the people of God. For it to be a light to the whole world, here is their leader sacrificing his own children in the valleys outside of Jerusalem. And it's into this darkness, spiritual darkness, and oppression from the Assyrians that Nahum speaks. Ponder these words. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? And perhaps you're thinking, admittedly we've gone through several of the minor prophets, perhaps you're thinking, really, again, judgment, judgment, judgment. Is that all we hear about? Right? Go through the prophets, read the major prophets, talk about judgment. Read the minor prophets, they talk about judgment. What do you think the people need to be told over and over and over again? Judgment. Judgment is coming. Why do they need to be told over and over and over again? Because they don't listen. It doesn't sink deep within their heart. They just cast them off as some, oh, he must be an angry God. And Okay, well, we have some other merciful gods over here. And so they, they put them off as the angry God. No, 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 that is the true and living God. And our hearts are in the same condition that their hearts were in. And we need to be reminded of this coming judgment. And so Nahum is asking them, who can stand before this indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And what's the answer? Can you, Connor? No. The answer is no one. No one can endure this. And that's asked of of this throughout all of Scripture, because this is responding to the human condition. That's an Adam and Eve, all the way down to you. With our sin, we think, oh, I can stand. You're loudly proclaiming, I can stand. I can stand in the day of the Lord. I can stand in, in before His indignation. I can endure the anger, the, the fury of His wrath. I can endure it. And you proclaim that every time you sin. Because you don't fear Him. You don't live. You don't live in subjection to Him the way He would have you live. And so this is a common theme throughout all of Scripture. You see this in Psalm 76, the Psalm of Asaph. He says, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth was feared. And was still. And then 
also in Revelation when you see the, the judgment coming upon. And it says, John writes, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who was seated on the throne and from the Lamb. For the day is great of their wrath, and it has come. Who can stand? This is the state of everyone who's, who's answering the same way we do, the same way you do in your own heart. I can do it. These same people, when God comes and comes in all of His glory, are crying for the mountains to fall upon them. Can you imagine the state such a soul that would rather have a mountain fall on you, rocks crumble upon you, than to fall before your God. How will you stand in such a day? You, you see it here. Look at the imagery. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. It, it's, his wrath being poured out fire it recalls to your mind the Sodom and Gomorrah and absolute destruction. God's people, those who, who flee and flee to the rocks, let the reader understand, are saved. But the fire comes down and burns Sodom and Gomorrah. And the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. And it brings, recalls to your mind this, this decreation of all that God has made. Everything you think is going to be here in the future, it's all being torn asunder. God has brought it together in creation and He will tear it asunder in His judgment. So answer the question in your mind, how will you stand before His indignation? We are continually tempted. You are continually tempted just as Adam and Eve were. Satan whispering in your ear, go ahead and do it. You can stand. You can do it. You can endure. You can do it. And then our culture, it, it reinforces this. Every, every movie or every advertising blitz is driven to you so that you will think, I should just look within. Look within for my strength. It's this, this well that will continue to flow and it will never dry up. It will never run dry. So even this past week, a congressman from Maryland, Elijah Cummings, passes away. And his fellow congressmen, where do they bid him? Rest in peace? No, no. They tweet. Break condolences, they tweet to him. Rest in power. Well, I'm sorry, but if he had any power, he wouldn't be dead. Right? And that's that's the personification of what we all think and what Nahum is railing against, and what every empire is built upon. The Persians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Romans. Your little empire, your little thesis. Though it may be small, you'll make it as small as you can just so you can be the king. 
and use in your heart the things I can stand before God. And wrestling with these questions is what makes Nahum such a beautiful, amazing, and impactful book. So within this book and within this message, there is both terror and then there is both comfort. Terror to the wicked and then comfort to the believers. And so the people of Judah, hearing this message of God destroying the Assyrians, they're brought to rejoice. They rejoice in this God's judgment that is coming down from them. They're rejoicing that finally God will remove the burden from their backs that is the Assyrians. This empire that has been killing their grandparents, killing their parents, whom they fear will kill their grandchildren as well. And God will judge them. This citadel of brutality, Nineveh, will be torn asunder. This fount of oppression will be filled in. But in addition to rejoicing, this great message also brings us to fear as well. Tremble in fear. And so we sit rejoicing that God's judgment will come upon those who are oppressing you. We rejoice that we will finally have justice in this land, that we will finally have justice in our homes and in our lives. But then you realize that they're not being judged because they're oppressing. No, they're being judged because they're sinning against an almighty God, a holy God. And then this fear rises up in you as you begin to contemplate, am I an enemy of God? When He judges others, will I be judged as well? So it's much like the Trinity. You have one God and three persons. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Tertullian would write on his and his works on the Trinity that he would he would focus on the one, and as soon as he focused on the one, his heart was drawn to the three. And then as he's contemplating the beauty of the three, his gaze would then turn back to the one. And that's our approach as Christians to this judgment of God coming down. We rejoice that justice will come in the land, but then we do it fearfully as we contemplate the state of our own souls. Think. You think the judgment of God is for other people? Well, are you repenting? My friends, continually, are you repenting? Are you searching out, seeking forgiveness from other people? Are you, are you weeping over sin? Not the sins of other people, but when's the last time you wept over your own sin? When's the last time you contemplated the beauty of God and saw your own finality and sin within your heart and it's brought you to tears? And you think the judgment of God might fall on others. You have to be aware that unless we are standing in Christ, it will fall upon us as well. So then, when you think that there is no hope, and you finally come to terms with the fact that you cannot stand, and you will not stand before His indignation, and you will not endure the heat of His anger, and it's when your heart is broken that God has you exactly where He wants you. 
Let us go back to the text. And into the darkness, these words cry out, The Lord is good. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Now Nahum is, is a beautiful. He, he's unsurpassed in his imagery that he'll bring. He's, he's much more poetic and he brings you to image the, the troops marching and setting up the ramparts to get the city. And the city is like a, a, a pool whose water is running out never to return. And one of the commentators actually said that in the midst of all of the judgments that are going on, here is this verse, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. In this verse is this little paradise island. In this massive river of God's judgment, here is this little island of peace that God is good. First notice, the beginning of the verse, and what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but. It's not as though there is judgment, but God is good. God would, would like, but doesn't really want to do this, but He must. No, it is through His judgments that God is good. It's in the midst of His judgments that God is good. This is imaged into your soul, and, and you want it, you long for it. As we said, admittedly, you're happy when you see the other guy get pulled over. We're blind to the fact that other people want us to get pulled over, but we're happy when he gets pulled over. Even when, when criminals who have a murderous past or abuse children, whatever it might be, and they go to prison, we know there is not enough justice. Even when they get the death penalty, we are oftentimes left longing for more justice. And God is good in the midst of this justice. Not aside from his justice, but through his justice, God is good. And so we must push aside this cheap paradigm of Christianity that is so easy, that equates God's goodness with our temporal blessings. So I have a beautiful house and a full stomach, so God is good. But what happens when that isn't what, what your life is? This, this big house and your full stomach, maybe it's a curse. Can you think of that? Maybe it's a curse lulling you to spiritual sleep. John Berridge, he's an 18th century uh, minister in the Church of England who's writing into the correspondence back and forth with Samuel Wilkes and he writes to Samuel, a Christian never falls asleep in the fire or in the water, but grows drowsy in the sunshine. A Christian never falls asleep in the fire or the water, but grows drowsy in the sunshine. And so, my friend, God will throw you in the fire. He'll throw you in the water. And He is good. Through imprisonments and beatings without number, often in death, in danger of death. Five times, Paul writes, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. I've been stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked and left at sea for a full night and a full day. And throughout his journeys, he was danger, in the danger of rivers, and danger of robbers, and danger of countrymen, and Gentiles, and cities, and the wilderness. So there was danger everywhere, in the city, or in the sea, and amongst false brethren. I've been in labor through hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger, and thirst, and often without food, and cold, and in exposure. And through this, God is good. We look at the life of Job. He proves himself to be faithful in the midst of all of this storm that is going on. There was no occasion in his life to grow dreary and to grow drowsy in the sunshine. The oxen and the donkeys were the savings that carry them off. The sheep and the servants, well, fire rains down from heaven and kills them. The camels and the other servants that weren't burned well, the Chaldeans came and carried them off. And then his sons and daughters were all celebrating in the house of his oldest son. And the wind came along and lifted up the house and dropped it on them. And they were dead. What was his response? He fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Through the hardships and through the judgments, and perhaps maybe not to this degree, but you're suffering the same thing. Your marriage is, is floundering at best. Through that, God is good. Maybe you're not even married and you, your heart aches. Everywhere you look, it seems as though everybody else is married but you. And your heart aches for that. And you long for that. In the midst of that, God is good. Or your ex-spouse is trying to finagle it so he can take your place. In the midst of that, God is good. Or these children who you've raised and you've done everything right, everything that, that all the parenting books say to do. You did it. Family worship, devotions, you were patient. They know the Awana verses. They got all the flight stickers. They're good. And then they grow up and they turn away. And this God whom you love, they no longer care. And not only that, you haven't heard from them for several years. In the midst of that, God is good. So, in all of this, there is one place to flee. When this river is raging by and there's this little paradise island in the middle and around we see the torrent of God's judgment coming down, there is one place to flee and that is to Christ, my friends. To flee to Christ. Who can stand? Who can endure? You can. Not of your own strength like culture would want to tell you. Not like your own sinful nature would want to tell you. But no, you can stand. You can endure through Christ and through Christ alone. 
Let Him be the delight of your soul. Let Him be this island of paradise in the midst of the storm. Not just just someone who can save you. Not just that, but no, the true delight. The true delight of your soul. So God, God is good. God is a stronghold. But He also knows as well. You see here at the end of verse 7. There's not some... He's not merely some cavernous storm shelter that you can come into. This empty middle school cafeteria. And come into and endure the storm and then go on your way. No, but he knows you with this, with this intimate knowledge. He knows you and he loves you. To others, he might say, get away from me, for I never knew you. But to you, he says, I know you and I love you. What a great comfort that is. That all of the sins of your past, even the darkest ones that nobody knows about, He knows. And the sins that lie before you that you consider unfathomable at this stage, He knows of them. And yet, He loves you. And right now, this is opened before you. And Christ is calling you. Christ is calling you. Calling you to repent and Repent and turn from your sins and calling you to flee and to flee to Christ and Christ alone. Do not let this moment pass. This moment right now. Do not let it pass. But flee to Christ. You've done it a thousand times. Good. Do it again. You think you've done it? And you look back and you realize you were just trying to impress your parents. Good. Do it for the first time. Flee to Christ and to Christ alone. So Christians, as Christians, we fearfully rejoice. Not just rejoice, but we do so in fear. As we await this coming judgment of God. But it makes sense of all this. We have to wrestle with the question. Who is my enemy? As, as Nahum is, is prophesying this, it's really obvious. Well, their enemy is the Assyrian. It's really clear. But what about you? Who is your enemy? As we think of the totality of Scripture, we're recalling, one of you taught me this week, that our enemy is not someone in flesh. No, our enemy is Satan and his billions of demons that are working to steer you away from the faith because they want you to go to hell and endure this judgment of God. They want you to do it. That is your enemy. So if you're thinking of some specific individual, no, 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 no. That's your target audience. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Know that God will judge His demons. I know Satan, he will judge them in due time. But these over here in the flesh, pray for them that God would change their hearts and redeem their souls. So be patient, my friends. Be patient. God will judge His enemies. But until then, pray for them. Continue to pray for them. Pray for them and pray for your own soul that you will not fall into temptation. 
So not only do you have to ask yourself, who is my enemy? Unfortunately, you have to ask yourself, am I God's enemy? Am I God's enemy? Will other people rejoice when the judgment of God falls upon you? You probably haven't thought of it in that way, have you? Will you get swept away in this raging current that is the judgment of God, or will you find peace within the midst of this island? My friends, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. The day is coming, in closing here, when the people of God, you will rejoice at the judgment of God when it is poured out upon the nations. You see this in the end of Revelation when John is writing about the fall of all of God's enemies in chapter 18. And then in verse 20 it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. That is, rejoice over this great Babylon, the people of the the enemies of God, as they fall under the judgment of God, the people of God will stand rejoicing, clapping, praising God for all of His justice. For God has given judgment for you against her. Brothers and sisters, you will rejoice at the judgment of God as it comes. Be patient until it happens. Stand fearfully that you too might not fall under judgment. And do not leave here forlorn or guilty. Leave here rejoicing. Rejoicing that God will judge His enemies. That God is good. That God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is. Uh, it, it seems quite confounding that we would rejoice in your judgment. God, I I pray that you would let us be patient until that day. Let us be men and women of prayer until that day, God, and let it not fall upon us, God. Could you hold us and hold us fast until that day, God, that we would not drink your cup of wrath, but that we would flee to Christ and look to Christ as one who has drank this cup of wrath for us. Father, could you work in us and work in this church, God, that we would be men and women who are well aware of the judgment that is to come. We would rejoice in it, but God, that we would also go and proclaim the good news of your Son, that others might flee from this judgment. 